Good morning. This is Conversations with Cassie. And as always, I'm still Cassie, your host of the show. I hope everyone has been well while we have been working furiously in the background trying to upgrade and change up and make improvements to the podcast and the websites and the blog. If you haven't checked them out, please check them out and also know that even if you do see some changes, you're going to be seeing lots more changes in the near future. We are making some major improvements and shifts to be able to grow better and give you more access and more information in our journey in the story of us. So today we are going to discuss kind of a, let's call it a recap of a little bit of information we've discussed in the past and bringing in some new ideas and some new theories. As some of you may know, I have been reading, or had been reading, I should say, Voyages of the Pyramid Builders by Dr. Robert Schock. Uh, Dr. Schock is a geology professor from Boston. No, he doesn't teach at Harvard, but he is a well-respected geologist, and he was asked many years ago now to, as a geologist, travel to Cairo to the Giza Plateau and assess the geology of the Sphinx and the surrounding enclosure and present a professional opinion as a geologist about the area in question. And being a man of academia, a prudent man of academia, I might state, uh, Dr. Schock put off accepting that request until he received his tenure. Once he received his tenure, he indulged John Anthony West, a pretty well-known independent researcher of ancient Egypt. He has several books out. If you haven't read any of his, feel free. Like I said, he is a pretty prominent, well-respected, independent researcher of ancient Egypt. So Dr. Schock traveled to Cairo with Mr. West and from a purely geological point of view, examined the enclosure and the Sphinx and did some tests. They managed to get some approval from Dr. Hawass. Uh, It was not long-lived, by the way. I guess as Dr. Hawass was hearing updates about the results, he did shut the research down. No big surprise there. After that, Dr. Schock presented a report because he found his information to be very interesting. So he presented at a, I believe it was an American Geological Society conference in California. And his presentation presented evidence and data of such a high quality that he received no true backlash from his fellow geologist. His fellow geologist actually, initially based on his presentation, accepted his findings as being valid and legitimate. And of course, this got into the media and made big news because one of the things, or the two largest components of his report was that the weathering that you see on the enclosure walls around the Sphinx had to be precipitation weathering. They could not be wind, air, erosion. They had to come from rainfall and runoff, and that the extent of the erosion indicated that the erosion likely occurred over a long period of time. 
and that even one or two major catastrophic precipitation events could not have created the damage that he saw from a geologic perspective. Well, in order to ascertain how such precipitatory erosion could be present on the enclosure walls, he looked at climate records and geologic records and determined that basically the erosion had to have been complete, not totally complete, but majorly complete, no later than 6,000 years ago because that's the last kind of temperate climate in the area that would have allowed for significant precipitation. After that, you get the shift to what you have now, which is the Sahara Desert and very minimal annual precipitation. As I already stated, he claims that the erosion had to be extended extended precipitatory erosion to see what we see in the enclosure walls. So if the, hypothetically, if the last year that you could get significant precipitation was roughly 4,000 BC and the erosion that's visible had to have occurred over a long period of time, he postulated that the enclosure walls had to have been exposed in their current state at least 5,000 BC. And of course, that's twice as old as Egyptologists will tell you that the Sphinx has been around and the enclosure wall has been exposed. In the second testing that he was doing, which was a ground-penetrating test that shows how far down water erosion is occurring in the flat land, so the, the ground around the Sphinx inside the closure, and those numbers were increasing the date. It's pretty much accepted that the Sphinx was carved out in sutru, which means blocks were not carried into that area and built up to create the Sphinx. The opposite occurred. The limestone around the Sphinx was quarried away in order to create the Sphinx where it sits right now. So it was not built in the same manner that the pyramids and the temples were built, at least not totality. And there's hypotheses about the bases of the pyramids, but that's a whole other topic. In his preliminary research of the ground penetrating information that he was receiving, he had to realistically, based on the data, shift his dates again. Now remember, just off of the enclosure wall, he had pushed the date of the Sphinx back 7,000 years, roughly. The depth of the water penetration to about halfway back from the front paws of the Sphinx indicated that at least the front of the Sphinx was probably carved 9 to 11,000 years ago, which is a completely, totally unacceptable date to textbook academics. As I said, though, his research was sound enough and his data was valid enough that a whole conference room full of geologists on the surface, based on his presentation, were willing to initially accept his findings. Egyptologists that are not geologists, that had never read his report, that had never questioned him, talked to him, interacted with him at all on his methods, his research, anything, all 
completely debunked him. Now, after getting his name in the public in probably not the best way he wanted to, he was convinced enough of his own research that he's actually continued to question and explore ancient sites and ancient civilizations and the validity of the information that the textbooks provide regarding those civilizations. And being a geologist, and this is one of the reasons I'm discussing him today, he does look at sites differently. I mean, that's how he got into this area anyway, was being asked to come in as a geologist and look at the site from a geologic point of view, which is something that does not happen with archaeologists because they are not trained geologists. Geology can tell you a lot. And yes, there are some geologic things that archaeologists understand, like the piling up of layers upon layers upon layers in the earth, and that helping to give you dates, or at least a chronology of what has occurred on a site. In the very simplest forms, with absolutely nothing else impacting an area, if you have a square foot of land, and you dig in that square foot of land from the top straight down. The basic theory is that the stuff that you find at the top closest to the surface is the newest and most recent artifacts. And the further you go down digging in your square foot of land, the more ancient the artifacts you will find. The problem is that sometimes Mother Nature changes the order up through earthquakes, through volcanoes, through floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, fires. There's all kinds of ways that Mother Nature can interfere with that basic tenant and throw all kinds of craziness into the mix. And geologists are trained to see those things. Geologists are trained to see shifts in the layers of the land, abnormalities in the layers of the land that would suggest things like earthquakes or landslides or flooding. And having a geologist whose only concern is the land look at a site from his professional point of view can be a huge benefit if you're willing to allow his expertise to complement your own expertise. The problem is a lot of academics are megalomaniacs. I mean, they have egos larger than the legendary ego of Genghis Khan, and they do not want to share anything with anyone else. But Dr. Schock has gone on and he has done more geological assessments of other historic locations, and he has started writing mass media works presenting evidence that he's found. And one of the things that he has done that I do not think, at least I'm not familiar with any anthropologist or archaeologist who has taken this kind of approach, mostly because archaeologists and anthropologists seem hell-bent against diffusion. They seem hell-bent against believing that the world was ever global before today. No matter how much evidence you put in front of their face, that suggests otherwise. They still are convinced that all these little independent civilizations all grew up in isolation, all 
all develop the same things in isolation. It, it boggles the mind how much tunnel vision they get. And because they believe this, because they're, they're taught this, this is actually intro to Anthro 101. They study just their little Mayan town or just their little Inca site or just their Indus Valley site, whatever their little quirk is. And they study it almost in a vacuum, in a bottle. Dr. Shock, on the other hand, has taken an approach like Mr. Hancock of looking at a much larger picture. And one of the things that he suggests that makes amazing logical, rational sense, and I've presented a, a smaller form of this in dealing with this concept that academics have of denouncing a Noah's global flood, which is ironic considering the way they think that they don't realize that if, say, and we saw this with the Boxing Day tsunami, that tsunami affected multiple countries and a huge expanse of the Indian Ocean area. That occurring 10, 20, 30,000 years ago would have been a world ending flood to those people. It was a world ending flood to some of the villages and towns that existed today. So magnify that to a time where you didn't have internet, you didn't have CNN, you didn't have BBC, you didn't have navies with huge metal ships that could come in and try to save you. You were on your own, you and your tribe or your town or whatever. And in all honesty, even our great big warships today, had they been caught in the heart of that tsunami, would not have come in first place. And that would have impacted those people. And obviously, the survivors could not have stayed in those areas. Some of those areas became totally destroyed. Some of them underwater, some of them no longer near the water because of the changes that the impact of the tsunami and the aftermath created. So what or you do. You move, you migrate, you go somewhere else where you feel it's safe and that reminds you of home because you've taken your culture with you. So if you're a fishing culture, you need to find somewhere else where you can fish and do it successfully. So it needs to resemble where you came from. The same if you're a hunting group, you need to relocate to another area where you can hunt, if not the exact same animals you were hunting before, very similar animals so that you can decrease the learning curve of successfully hunting the new game that now will become your food. But we know this today. When people migrate from one country to another, especially in any significant number, they take everything with them. They take their culture with them. They take their language with them. They take their religion with them. They take, you know, how they eat, how they live. They take all that with them. So why do we think they couldn't do that at any point in time in the past? And that's part of the hypothesis that Dr. Shock presents in Voyages of the Pyramid Builders, that you can account for similar pyramids showing up in different places, far removed from each other, and at different times. And he uses geology and climate 
hematology and some of their sub-study areas to prove it. He uses ice core samples and tree rings to help determine when things might have been bad enough in certain areas of the world to cause mass migration due to natural catastrophe. And his information is very logical, very rational. So he postulates that at certain times throughout history, and he backs it up, and I'm not going to sit here and give you all the dates and, and stuff like that because I'm, I'm talking in general concepts right now, that when catastrophes happen that can be documented even today, comet impacts, magnetic storms due to the earth passing through very strong dust clouds of comet trails and asteroid trails and different other cosmic chaos that we are subjected to every day that you see at approximately the same time major shifts in history. Civilizations die or disappear in one area and then a hundred years later or so you have have a new civilization that seems to spring out of nowhere somewhere else. And the correlation seems to be these great climate chaotic events in history. And to give it more validity, we just had a new research study get presented to the public that I've discussed in a previous podcast done by an engineer and a religious studies professor. So again, outside the area of anthropology and archaeology, but experts in their own rights determine that the cave paintings going back at least 40,000 years and probably older if we can find a little more information and examples that our ancestors were documenting significant historic events and what would be more significant and more historic to our ancestors than things like very close comet flybys that disrupted Earth. And we don't have to get hit by a comet for it to affect us. A large enough comet flying by close enough to Earth can shift us out of our orbit just a hair, can knock the tilt of our axis just a hair, and that might seem insignificant. So what's one degree? Well, when you're the little ant on the ping pong ball, a one degree shift is catastrophic. It changes all kinds of things, especially if it's done basically instantaneously. And these would be. Comets don't take years to pass by that closely. And sometimes they have these really weird orbits where they can be close every seven years for a few decades. And then we don't see them again for hundreds of years. And those things would have been significant to our ancestors, just as significant as actual impacts of comets. Also, comets have a ton of debris trailing behind them because of the speed that they travel through space, they create their own friction. And that friction shears off pieces of them. And sometimes those pieces are as small as dust particles. And other times those pieces can be as large as little moons. And because of the speed and the gravity of the comet, and the gravity is increased due to the speed, all those pieces for some amount of time trail behind. 
Now, as time goes on and the comet gets a little bit smaller and so the gravity gets a little less, some of those pieces lag further and further behind. But we still pass through dust clouds of comets and asteroids that are thousands of years old as far as passing by us that we don't ever see anymore. But we still get affected by them by virtue of passing through the dust clouds that still remain. So this is an interesting concept that for at least 40,000 years, our ancestors have been able to intelligently and accurately, by the means that they had available to them, document these times in history that were very catastrophic to the planet or to large areas of the planet. And these catastrophes, as previously stated, would have definitely, definitely created the dire need for whole civilizations to pick up and move to whole new areas. And yes, there would be a delay in setting up their new culture in a new place. And you might even have situations where the new culture doesn't set up, which is why it seems so hard for anthropologists to follow this, exactly the same way it did in the old location. Because you're never going to find an exact match to where you came from as to where you're going. So you might have to trade things. You might have to trade your limestone for granite. You might have to trade your rice for corn or your beans for potatoes. There are things that you are going to have to adapt and change to. But I think the only way that we will truly make significant advances in understanding all of our history and finding out that there is so much more history to us than our textbooks tell us right now is by looking at it from a global point of view. And I hope presenting the information that I have today and in the past podcast, I do encourage you and inspire you to dust your curiosity off and seek some of this information on your own and add to it because anyone can add to the story of us because it is our story, all of us. It belongs to all of us and it should be investigated and learned and shared by all of us. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more or know more, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Random Thought Provocator on blog, and obviously here on the podcast. And like I said, we will have some new places for you coming up, but that's a surprise. Shh, don't tell your first to know. Have a nice day.